Thank you, worship team, and good morning, Radiant. And uh, it was so fun even just sitting in my office between services and watching individuals and families and coming in and kids looking up and having snowflakes falling in their mouth. And uh, uh, you braved it through the first winter uh, snow here. And uh, I pray that the Lord will continue to bless the time. Today, we are entering into what is the last section of the book of 2 Samuel. It's the last four chapters of 2 Samuel. And in the scholarly world, there's a lot of discussion. We might even say debate about uh, these last uh, four chapters and this section that comes in here. In fact, uh, they use differing terms for it. Uh, Here's a few of them. Some call them the appendices of the book of 2 Samuel. Some call it the epilogue. Uh, Then those who are trying to figure out more and using more words say they are diverse supplements to 2 Samuel. And another term that's used is succession narrative. I don't even know what some of those mean uh, in that. But why the debate on them? Well, the debate on them, let me just put it in normal lay terms, is because the last four chapters are, well, they're kind of weird. They're just kind of weird. Uh, Closing chapters, at least for us, closing chapters in a book or something that we're reading, they wrap the story up, right? I mean, they put the bow around it, tie it up, and, and kind of have it come to a place to where either it ends or it sets up, and you know that it's setting up for continuation of things. Uh, but when you come to these final four chapters, uh, they, one, they're not in sequential order. And in fact, the text that we're going to be in chapter 21 today is actually likely occurred uh, some years before uh, the events that, that proceeded in the text. And they don't necessarily follow in sequential order. And they really don't roll into each other smoothly. It's like you're reading one and then you're like, whoa, okay, uh, I guess that's what's on the table now. Um, They also do not provide the hallmark final five minutes of the story. Um, And in fact, uh, they're quite gory. Uh, These uh, final chapters do not say, and David and God's people got their act together, united together, served the Lord faithfully for his glory, and all lived happily ever after. That is not the way it goes. In fact, you kind of get to the end here. In fact, the first verse of chapter 24, the last chapter of 2 Samuel, it says this, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And then midway through the final chapter of 2 Samuel, it says, so the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel. And you're like, this is the end, man? I mean, let's just all eat worms and die. kind of a thing. And then it just ends and you're like, well, in fact, earlier this week, my beloved wife came to me and said, hey, Doug, I read chapter 23 today. That's weird. And uh, I'm just wondering, what in the world are you going to preach on? (laughs) It was probably softer than that, but somewhere in that realm. And uh, welcome to a preacher's house and the things we talk about. But it is so true. 
Uh, it is so true with all that. So let me kind of uh, put two questions that I think are fitting for these final four chapters. Let me get them answered and then we'll move towards getting into this first one for this week. Two questions on the table. Question number one, Doug, are you going to take us all through all four final chapters? Answer is no, uh, I'm not going to. Um, I've selected three sections here out of these final four chapters, and I believe that they do two things. I believe, one, that they serve the intent of the text well. Uh, that's critical to me. I want to have the text served well and even how it's ending, and I think it, it, it does and how we're going to do this. But I also have the challenge of, I don't know if you know this yet, but like Thanksgiving's coming up. And I want for you to know this, that if you have family in town the weekend before or the weekend after Thanksgiving, it's not going to be like Thanksgiving weekend and then you bring them to church and, and Pastor Doug's like, and God brought on his people pestilence and famine. Okay, that's not going to be happening. Uh, I want to stay true to the text, but listen, friends, it's also a holiday, and uh, there's, we, can, we can work both. So here's how I'm going to go about this. Today, it's going to be the first 14 verses of chapter 21. It's called a final sit in darkness. And thank the Lord, it's the final sit. Then next Sunday, which is the Sunday before Thanksgiving, it's going to be chapter 22. And it's a looking back psalm. If you look at the text, it's literally like a psalm of David. And he's looking back. And then Thanksgiving Sunday, right after it, it's going to be just the first seven verses of chapter 23, and it's a looking forward a prophecy that David has. So bring your family members. We'd love to be able to uh, have the time around Thanksgiving together, and it won't be pestilence. Okay, I promise. Second question after, uh, are you going to preach all the four chapters? Uh, second question is, so what, do these, what are these four concluding chapters really all about? Like, what is the purpose of them as you're setting it up? Is it so weird? Well, understand this first. The central concern of God's word is not to tell a historical narrative alone. God's word, especially in the Old Testament, is not just a history text, or I should say it's not a history text. It tells history, but there are things that are happening there. God is telling us about him. God is telling us about us in that. It's not just a movement of chronology of history, and sometimes we can think that that's all that it is. There is some other purpose that is going on, and in these final four chapters, I love what uh, the commentator Bill Arnold says in, on this. He says, the overarching concern throughout most of 2 Samuel has been with the question, who may serve suitably as king of Israel? And I think he's right. When you read through this, the writer, the human writer, 2 Samuel, is trying to help us answer the question, who may serve suitably as king? Uh, when we were in 1 Samuel, we saw that King Saul, uh, man, it had a great start, dude, but uh, not suitable. It just went dark and bad. And then David comes along and you're like, maybe David, maybe David, understand Saul was the first king of Israel. It's the first time we see that happening of God's people. And it's like, maybe this guy. And then David and 2 Samuel starts out and it's like super hopeful with David. And it's like, I can just tell you on the whole movement of it all, what we're seeing is, yeah, yeah, someone like David is more suitable to be king of God's people. And yet in that, as we've been in this dark period from chapter 11, talking about David, it's also telling us, but David is is not the perfect king. King Saul is not a suitable king. 
David, more like a suitable king. But friends, know this. Within the text, there's this pointing. And this pointing is to the fact, the son of David, the Messiah, he is fully suitable to be the king of God's people. So all of this has a story that moves with it. The overarching concern throughout most of 2 Samuel has been with the question, who may serve suitably as king? And so with that said, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 21, and today a final sit in darkness. Remember my noting Karen's comment about, oh, what in the world are you going to do? And I was thinking on Monday, whoa, what in the world am I going to do with this? This week, um, she was right. And when I came into this text and I'm digging in, I'm thinking the same thing. Um, so I go to uh, one of my faves uh, commentators, Dill Ralph Davis. Um, if you're ever studying and you're looking particularly in the Old Testament, man, I'm just telling you, he, he's, my, he's my guy, Dill Ralph Davis. He gives us some help that started helping me in how to go about this text. He begins saying this. He says, allow me a suggestion. And he's talking about these first 14 verses of chapter one. Allow me a suggestion. The writer tells this very solemn story, especially about Rizpah, because he wants to make you solemn. He depicts this very sad episode because he wants you to be sad over it and to marinate in that sadness. And I think this is interesting. And not go uh, worrying about how to pilfer some application from it. By the way, one of the things I love about Davis is he is amazing at taking texts, of particularly the Old Testament, and having application that is so true to the text and so true to who God is. And yet, so for me, when reading this and knowing how he writes and him in his writing, it's like, that's an amazing statement. Because sometimes we can just want to dive in. What, what's, the, what's the nugget I need to get out of this to apply to my life this week kind of a thing. And he's saying, hold off on that. He goes on to say this. There is something irreducibly sad about this sight that we'll see. For here is a, gart, a, gut, a heart and gut-wrenching misery. And the writer would fill your senses with it. As if to say, look what comes from covenant breaking. By the way, we could just put in there application. Look what comes from sin. And lastly, he says this. Who, whoever stops to consider the wrath of God? The psalm, he's referring to Psalm 90. The psalm answers nearly no one. But our writer says that you should. So stay at Gibeah. Let it sink into your pores. Share the tragedy. It will do you good. So Lord, today, that statement of what we just read has been resounding in my heart today. And so we're going to sit here at Gibeah and we're going to let this sink in. And we're going to trust that it will do good. It is a heart and gut-wrenching situation that frankly raises questions in our mind, uncomfort in our mind. And we're squirrely people. 
And I pray we're here right now with you, Lord. And Spirit of God, use the word of God to work in our lives for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Verses 1 and 2. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for how many years? Three years. By the way, I know what I'm reading English Standard Version. It says even after that, year after year. It's like the writer wants for us to understand that it's like three years. Oh, by the way, pause. Like year after year after year of famine. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, by the way, that's super cool. God reveals when he is sought. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. By the way, Saul is dead. Saul has been dead for a number of years. And the Lord says, there is a blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king, David, called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, Although the people of Israel had sworn to, sw to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. The text is making reference to events that took place that are recorded in Joshua 9. In uh, Joshua 9, the conquest of Canaan is taking place. Uh, we have in Joshua 9, listing of all these ites, the, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Jebusites and all the other parasites or I don't know, whatever it was, the kinds of things. They're gathered together, Israel's gathered together to, or they are gathered together to fight against Joshua and the Israelites. And, and then in Joshua 9, uh, we learned that the Gibeonites hear what happened in Jericho. You know, so the whole events of Jericho took place, you know, around the walls of Jericho and they all come tumbling down. You, you know, maybe if, if you've seen the veggie tales that they're throwing slushies, you know, that kind of stuff going on. Uh, hey, the whole, they heard about all this taking place and they heard about their God, Yahweh, and what happened. And they're like, oh my, they're coming after us. And so the Gibeonites, they, they played the Israelites. They, they have this whole thing that they put together. I'm not going to go into details of it. And, and they kind of con the Israelites uh, like there's something is going on that's not going on. And anyway, uh, when it comes right down to it, uh, uh, Joshua and the Israelites make a covenant oath with them. By the way, and Joshua 9.14 makes it plain that Joshua and the Israelite leaders did not inquire of the Lord when making this covenant oath. By the way, I, I, it's sad to say that I have to emphasize they made a covenant oath. Oath, And I have to emphasize that in our world, in our culture, because we don't understand covenant oaths. Oaths are, well, as long as they work out in our world. We don't understand a covenant oath, and that's part of what complicates the story. Because a covenant oath was a covenant oath, and God held his covenant people to their covenant oath, even if they didn't seek him out and make a wrong thing. There's no like fine writing in the details of this covenant oath contract. In God's eyes, this oath was made. And then we're told here 
that uh, what was ha- had happened is that there's a blood guilt on Saul. As I mentioned, Saul is already dead, but Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul, who is years after Joshua and all of this, Saul is now king. There is this covenant oath in place regarding the Gibeonites, and Saul broke that covenant oath that was made by Joshua and the Israelites. You see, it carries on. Because covenant oaths had legs to them that continued. And it's important that I understand here, we are talking about a covenant oath of a, of a, a covenant people of God. Know this, friends, we are not, be careful with this, if you're in your own application, be careful with this. This, this does not go into personal, individual application. Because this is a covenant oath situation among God's people as a whole. And here a covenant oath had been taken and it's carried on. And God in his sovereignty, sorry, starts getting us uncomfortable, allowed for a famine for how long? And if you follow the text as we just read, it's been three years in a famine in the Middle East. God's people... And then we read David sought the Lord. It's interesting. We don't really know. Is that, a, is that a David has been seeking the Lord? I actually think the form of the movement of the language isn't referring to that. There's a part I walk away from this, and I can't for sure, but I walk away from the reading of this, and it's like it's been three years, and David finally, I'm putting that in, seeks the Lord for what, Lord, what's going on? Is there something that's been taking place that you want to get our attention on? By the way, why might it take, if that's the case, why might it take David so long to do that? Because the last 10 chapters are David in a dark time of life. And in fact, in the last 10 chapters, you don't see David in this mode of routinely seeking the Lord. In fact, it's a crazy uh, rarity. And here in this one rare moment, David seeks the Lord. And I just go as a leader, I just go, why weren't you seeking the Lord like three months into the famine? Why not like six months, a year? I mean, dude, I'll just tell you, I get the sense from the text that it's been three years and finally, David is now seeking the Lord. And and here's the thing. God tells him. That is really cool. It is also a bit baffling. Like, why didn't God just send him a note or an angel? Here David seeks the Lord and the Lord reveals what's going on. David, I might say it this way. David, I've had to use a famine for three years to get your attention. And I need to reveal that there's a blood guilt that's been going on ever since Saul. And David, you're not Saul, but that carries on. And that remains. And David, it's time to get this right. You know, you and I can walk away from this and have a view of God like, man, God, you're kind of like holding a grudge. You know, God, what about all those innocent people who are dealing with the family? I mean, none of them made the decision. David didn't make the decision. Why are you punishing them? Part of this, I'm not going to get us out of the uncomfort. Sometimes you got to sit in it. And isn't it interesting that we can have on these points and times with the Lord and with what the Lord does, and we can like turn on this angle and like look at the Lord and go, you know what? You need to give an account for yourself to me. 
Well, friend, be careful. Do you really want to be in that seat? Do you really want to be in that place where you are in the place where God owes you an accounting of who he is? Careful. I am telling you, it's not going to go well in the end if that's the attitude now. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? Oh, by the way, that's interesting. I don't note this. Nowhere in the text after David learns that the Lord is revealing to him, there's been a blood guilt that's been going on that I'm now revealing to you. There's nowhere where David's like, well, that's rude. Like, what about those people? Like, what about, I didn't make the decision. Like, God, why... You know, all those questions that come to our mind are nowhere presented by David. Instead, what does David do? We see the text and David's like, okay. Let's go to the Gibeonites and ask what shall be done. And so David is obeying the Lord. What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement? Well, there's an awesome word in the Old Testament because that sounds like the New Testament, doesn't it? How can we make atonement? How can we make this blood guilt situation? How can we make this right? And that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. It's not only like David's like, you know, I've been given an assignment by dad and I got to do this thing, crud. And so I'm just going to carry out to the minimal amount. No, he's even in this. He's like, listen, we have a blood guilt situation. How can we make atonement for that? And not only in that, my desire is that you would even give blessing to what the Lord's plans are. It's almost like he's being evangelistic here. Verse four, the Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put away any man to death in Israel. There's so many details in there. They're, they're like, wait, wait, kind of almost surprised by this. Listen, there's no money thing that has to go on to make, well, where are you coming from, man? And then by the way, they make this legal statement. By the way, even they're already thinking, even if we were to say that there needs to make some atonement, because right in their mind, they're already thinking atonement means price of a life. That's New Testament. And they're already thinking that and they know legally by the, in that day, they had no right to demand that. And so David said, well, what, uh, what do you say that I should do for you? David's like, I'm not giving up. I'm leaning into this. I would have backed down. It's like, well, awesome. You're good. I'm good. God's got to be good. But David's like, no, no, I'm leaning back in. And verse five, And they said to the king, the man who consumed us, their former relatives and so forth, Saul who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in the territory of Israel, which would have broken the covenant oath that they had made in Joshua, verse six, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before Yahweh at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And David said, that doesn't seem right to me. No. David said, I will give them. I will give them. 
The Gibeonites' initial response is no damages need to be paid. Plus our making a requirement for death, we don't even have the legal rights to do that. But David leans in. And since Saul, by the way, and his house broke the covenant oath, a blood guilt payment must be made. And I'll just say for me, I'm feeling uncomfortable. And you are too. Because friends, that is a barbarian request. And yet David grants them a request. So why are these seven sons of Saul paying the price for Saul's oath-breaking work? And why are the regular people of Israel paying the famine price for King Saul's junk? And let's just even go back further in chapter 20. Why are the 10 de facto widows of David having to pay a high price for David's foolish decision? Oh, and let's even go back further. Why is that little baby that was born to Bathsheba through David and Bathsheba, why does that little baby have to pay the price for David's sin? Oh, and let's just keep on going back and back and back. Oh, until we get, by the way, to Adam and Eve. And I'll just note this. When Adam and Eve sinned, all sinned. As our representatives, when they sinned before God, the fall came in, the curse came in, and all sinned. But in all of this, I'm going to say, in the struggle bus of all this, there is something that is to be noted and that is that God revealed the source of the problem. Friends, in the day of New Testament, the days during the Testaments in the time of the pantheon of the small g gods of Greek and Roman, uh, my goodness, in the pantheon of gods, uh, the, the small g gods would play with humankind. We were their toys. That was the view of, of how it worked. And the fact here that Yahweh, uh, the God, revealed the problem sets him apart from this whole idea of all these other pantheon of gods who just play with mankind. And God revealed, and, and, and there is a, there is a well, let's put it this way, there is a sin problem that needs to be taken care of through an atonement payment. By the way, with Christmas coming up, all of this should be ring, ding-a-ling, Christmas bells in our head. Yahweh is sought and he revealed, verse 7, but the king spared Meshibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan. By the way, that would make, we've met Meshibosheth. He was the... Uh, 
the son of Saul, Jonathan, son of Saul, would make him part of Saul's household. He was a crippled man, kind of a conniver, but he was Jonathan's son, a bit of a, uh, uh, and crippled uh, because of the oath of the Lord that had been between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. By the way, David was not perfect. David did not stay true to every oath of God, but we are getting a reminding in the concluding chapters of this that what kind of king would rightly serve God's people? Answer, a king that keeps oath. And David here is being referenced back to his oath with Mephibosheth. And David is keeping that here. Verses eight and nine. And the king took two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, household of Saul, Ermoni and Meshibosheth, and the five sons of Merib. By the way, that's a different Meshibosheth than the one before. And the five sons of Merib, or this is likely Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the guy with the long name. And uh, he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. And they were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Um, wow. That is one gruesome scene. That is the kind of scene we turn our eyes from that just makes us sick inside. And frankly, in my role, I just want to resolve the horror and the uncomfort. But remain at Gibeah and sit in the horror. King Saul's offense was a national offense, not simply an individual offense. When Saul broke the covenant oath made back in the day with Joshua, that covenant oath was not just Joshua and the Israelites for that day, it was to be carried on. And, and, and Saul broke it. Saul broke it not just as an individual, but as a king who was a representative. And so there is this blood guilt held there that clearly the Lord sees and the Lord is like, we've got to resolve this. And so the Lord, to bring this to the front, we're in the dark days of David and God brings this famine and it's three years and David seeks the Lord and the Lord's like, David, I'm glad you asked because I've been wanting to tell you there's a blood guilt that's got to be taken care of. And David understands what that is, and David says atonement has to be made. And so they go to the household of Saul, and they take out these seven sons. Rizpah, two of her sons are among the seven. What a horror for a mom. I can't even begin to imagine.
Atonement is gruesome. Atonement is gory. Why? Because sin is gruesome. Because sin is gory. Atonement. It can take you to the scene of the passion and the cross. You want to talk about a bloody bath of gruesome, gory, unleashing of hell. It's there. I am so grateful for the movies, but I am going to tell you just from what is known about the historical accounts, even the Passion movie, which is the best movie in representing what takes place in that period of time and up to and on the cross and showing the gore of it all, still doesn't compare. Historical records tell that, by the way, if you do know that people before Christ were crucified, this was a perfected art by the Romans. There are records that tell that there were men who were crucified, that while walking, if you will, on, on the Via Della Rosa to Golgotha to be crucified, their intestines were hanging out of their body. Faces so swollen, they were utterly unrecognizable as to who they were. Sin, friends, sin is that gory and gruesome and horrible before the Lord. You see, we are a sanitized people. The slaughterhouse is strategically located far from the store. Our trash is hauled away. Our excrement is flushed away. Our body odor is showered away. Our bad breath is brushed and gargled away. Our germs are lysoled away. And I'll even note this. God's rightful wrath is refuted away. You see, we don't like to sit in that, do we? And so when we come upon something like this that seems just to be so unnecessary and so, so much needless gore, we look at it and then we look at God and we have this, I'm just saying, we have this sanctimonious disgust as if we claim to be the ones who are the rightful understanders, understanding ones of how things should take place. Oh, the pride. In my heart and in our heart. Oh, the pride. Like God has to give an account for us for what he does. Verse 10, then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth, spread it for herself on the rock, and from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens, and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or beasts of the field by night. I cannot even imagine what she's going through. 
Verse 11, when David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, she's from the household of Saul, had done, David went, took the bones of Saul, the bones of son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bashan, where the Philistines had hanged them. On the day the Philistines killed Saul in Gilboa, verse 13, and he brought up from there the bones of Saul, the bones of his son Jonathan. They gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zela, in the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the Lord commanded. By the way, important thing to get out of all that information is this. David was the king who suitably gathered all the remains of the household of Saul, Saul, Jonathan, and all of these who were killed. And he gave them a respectful burial. That's what's happening. Hey, a king like that, who even understanding the, the horror of Saul's uh, uh, poor leadership, and instead of getting all mad and angry and all the talk about what a loser he was, David understands that God is sovereign over all things, and David even has the bones gathered of that family, and he's not going to let them be left out like they are because of Rizpah. He's going to give them a respectful burial. By the way, a king like that, and then the last sentence, and after that, God responded to the plead of the land, and the blood guilt was removed. So many questions. So much gut-wrenching misery. But stay at Gibeah. Let it sing into your pores. Share the tragedy. It will do you good. <laughs> I already had my outline for this. It was sin is uglier than I imagine. Justice is costlier than I imagine. God is beyond what I imagine. After I just continue to sit on what Davis said, uh, no. It's just time to sit in some darkness. John 1 says, that the light shines in the darkness. It's referring to John the baptizer who is informing everyone that in the dark world, the light would come. There's something really cool about fireplaces and candles. I am unashamedly tying this to Christmas because, friends, I don't know if you know this, but Christmas is right around the corner. And the light stepped into the darkness. Oh, and by the way, I've heard it said that the light is brightest in the darkness. Look around this room. There is a lot of dark. I can see people there. I can't see faces. There's a lot of room of darkness around here. And we can get so caught up in the darkness. 
And this wee little light in the darkness stands out. There are things I don't understand about that light. Like, why wax? Like, it really sucks it up that wick? Like, it's really not that hot. I could totally put my finger on that. And Lord, uh, this text surrounds us with a gruesome, gory, dark scene. Blood guilt is in it. Death is in it. And it just seems like darkness is all around all that's happening. And yet there was a king who came and stepped in and sought you and sought atonement and even sought to do things right here. And all of it points to the King, Jesus Christ. Christmas is right around the corner, Lord, and I even just pray that today would begin getting us ready for that. Understanding, appreciating, yearning, longing, thinking, considering. Why did the light of the world come? And the answer is because a blood guilt payment needed to be made for our sin, for our darkness. And that payment that was paid was gory and gruesome and eye-turning and horrific. But done out of love, for as many as who would receive him would be called children of God. So in the dark, we seek you. In the dark, we passionately pursue you. Because it's in the dark where the light shines the brightest. Light of the world, thank you. Light of the world, do a work. Draw us for your glory. In Christ's name. And all God's people said,